It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. Talk therapy, when you think about it, sounds like a pretty tall order. I mean, it works. The therapists are trained and licensed. People get a lot out of it. But the proposition itself really sounds like a leap. You're supposed to go sit in a room or at your computer with a person you've never met. Tell them your deepest secrets and fears and traumas, and then they're supposed to get it. They're supposed to understand. It makes more sense if you're pretty sure the therapist understands your experiences in life, if they've been through a lot of the things you've been through. For me, personally, that's pretty easy. I'm a straight white guy who grew up in the suburbs and went to college. There are a lot of straight white college-educated therapists out there. It's different for someone like Jarrett Hill, Jarrett is a writer and journalist. He's the co-creator and co-host of the podcast Fanti here on the Maximum Fun Network. Fanti is a show about the downside of things one might be a fan of. Like you might love gospel music, but then there's the kind of homophobic bent around that culture, for instance. Or you might really love awards shows, but then you have to notice all the really troubling issues around them. Jarrett is black and queer, and he has gone to therapy many times over the years, but there just aren't many therapists out there who have been through what he's been through. My first experience with therapy was actually when I was nine. Wow. My parents divorced, and our like the judge in their case or something kind of mandated that me and my brother go to therapy. My little brother was two at the time, so like it was a very different kind of therapy situation. It's him with toys and drawing and that kind of a thing. But that was the first experience that I ever had with a therapist. So it's always been a very regular thing to me. And it wasn't something that I felt like, you know, I don't want to do this or I feel weird about this. And so I started when I was nine and, you know, I, I really enjoyed the experience. And then I went again when I was uh, in high school and I've had a couple of since since then. What, what is therapy like for nine-year-olds? What do you remember from it? <laughs> um, I'm trying to remember, as you say that, as, as I was saying that, like, I do remember uh, it feeling kind of like a daycare with, without many other kids in it. Um, and then going in, like, there being kind of like cognitive things, I think. I want to say they probably did some kind of like testing on me, like IQ testing or something. Because I ended up getting put into like our gifted and talented program in, in the Bay Area, um, which was awful for me, by the way. Don't be impressed because I was only there for half a school year. I did terribly like having to go to a different school. Um, but there was always just kind of conversation about how I was, you know, experiencing, you know, life, I guess. Because I remember when I was that young, because I was in fourth grade, and I remember having a lot of anger as a kid and not knowing not obviously not being able to correlate what that was about, but I had a lot of anger and I would be so angry with other kids on the playground. And I always have this image of like playing tetherball uh, outside and just being so mad and like hitting the ball. But I remember the first time I had the feeling of, oh, I'm not going through this by myself. Uh -huh. Like other kids are experiencing this and the divorce. And that was such a paradigm shifting moment for me as a kid because I felt like I wasn't the only kid that was, you know, having this issue. Did you have an awareness of where that anger was coming from or who it sounds like it was being directed all over the place. It wasn't 
taking it out on one particular thing. Yeah, I don't think I was even aware of it. Looking back at it, I can tell that I was angry because I know that I was a hot-headed kid for a little while there. But it it wasn't like, oh, I can recognize that I'm angry now after my parents' divorce because, you know, I was nine. My parents' divorce lasted, they're like, court battle of divorce lasted for mm. six years so it was a long arduous kind of process with them and i think that kind of seeing them go through that and being kind of in the middle if you will um was a really difficult thing and i've only just recently uh started talking to my mom about it because i'm i'm writing a pilot and i'm writing a book and uh, i i wanted her life experience the perspective of that uh, to kind of inform some of the things I was doing. And so I was talking to her about what it was like for her because she was she was 30 years old and had two kids and she was going through a divorce. And so I was like, I can't imagine what that must be like. I'm 35 and I have no kids and I'm single, right? Yeah. Um, so I can't imagine what that must have been like for her. But I just remember different markers of like things happening and then being really upset about them throughout my childhood. Is, is the residual effects of the divorce, is that what led to therapy again in high school? Um, I went to therapy at the end of high school, beginning of college. And I think that was more so me feeling like I'm going through like major life changes right now and it probably would be a good thing to do. And then I went a long stretch without having a therapist until about two years ago. And I'm 35 now, so, you know, a, a pretty good stretch there. And now I have a new therapist that I just started with within the last couple of months. So it's always been kind of me recognizing, like, I could use some assistance here or I want to do a check-in with myself because I know that so much is going on that I want to make sure that I'm aware. Have you been in situations or I guess what's the earliest situation you were in? where you can assign words to it, where you could say, oh, this is depression, this is anxiety, this is whatever it is. Hmm. Um, so it's funny you say that, uh, or that you ask that, because I was just in a meeting earlier where I'm working on developing this project with uh, a friend of mine who's a doctor, and we're looking at the imp uh, imposter syndrome um, mm. through the lens of blackness and the unique ways that that the imposter syndrome shows up for black people. And in our meeting today, I was describing to him the ways that in films, they depict anxiety as a lot of different voices speaking all at the same time, oftentimes in television shows or films. And as I was describing that, I was saying to him like, oh, I do have a much clearer understanding of what anxiety is. Because two years ago with my therapist, I was pretty clear about what depression looked like for me, but I couldn't really understand what anxiety looked like for me. And so I guess to your question of when is the first time I, I had a, a clear understanding of that, it's been very gradual. I wouldn't say that it's been like a, oh, that's what this is. I, I had a cruise job, a cruise ship job, where I was traveling around the world on a cruise ship, and I had been dating this guy long distance that I met online, and I found out that I had been catfished before that was like a, a thing. Um, and like before it had like a cool name and, a, and an MTV TV show. Uh, <laughs> and I, I had a friend on the ship who was an acupuncturist and she, that was as close as I was going to be able to get to a doctor. And I went to her and I was like, I feel all of these different feelings. And I think I described it to her as like, 
I have all of these feelings that I'm aware of, but I can't feel them. And she was like, say more. And I was like, it's like having a file on your computer's desktop and you keep clicking on it, but it won't open. Mm. And she said, oh, okay. And that was the first time someone had ever even used the word depressed to me. And she said that maybe I was like, I had like a situational depression. Uh, and I was like, hmm, I don't know what that is, but it doesn't sound wrong. Yeah. And then throughout my life, I, I think I've um, had various experiences where I've started to notice the slump for me. Um, and then over the last couple of years, I've started to note that I, my depression doesn't show up in the ways that I was kind of conditioned to see depression. I think I've always thought of depression as something that was, I'm, you know, under the covers, you know, on the couch with the curtains drawn, eating bonbons, crying, watching a romantic comedy. And like, that is depression. Uh -huh. And like, for me, depression has shown up in, in a lack of motivation and being way more tired than I should be for how much sleep I've had. Mm. And I went to my therapist, my now former therapist, and I was explaining this to her and I was like, I think I'm depressed, but I'm not really depressed. Like, come on. But it, it seems depression-y, you know? <laughs> Depression-esque. Right, right. I was saying to her, I was like, I think it's like depression adjacent, but like, let's not get crazy. And being a person who's always like analyzing myself, I heard myself saying that and I could hear in her, oh, you're going to be one of these, oh, <laughs> you yeah. know? So over the course of multiple sessions, I had been explaining the ways that I had been behaving lately and, you know, not wanting to do anything and just kind of being quiet and not wanting to do the work and blah, blah, blah. And she goes, oh, you mean like depression? Mm. And I was like, okay, trick, don't try it with me. Like, <laughs> like we had like, we had like, an, uh, like a, a fake argument. I was like, okay, I see what you just did right there. Don't, don't therapist me. She was like, I'm supposed to therapist you, right? So, <laughs> I'm a therapist. Uh, right. I, I don't know if you heard, but you're in therapy right now with a therapist. So I'm going to therapist right. you. And so that was, that was kind of the first time that the light bulb like really was on. And I was clear, like this thing that you've been kind of telling yourself might be is a thing and it's okay. You just know that you now have to do something about it. Like, why do you think you were bringing in this idea of being depression adjacent, but not actually depressed? Because I had that image in my mind about what depression was. And I didn't look like that for me. I, and I, I feel like I told her, I've never like cried for no reason. Or, you know, I'm not hyper emotional. And that's what depression has always looked like to me. And so I think that because it's not that, but it's something kind of like it. I'm, you know, it's like depression mode. You see what I did there? You see, see? what I did? See? <laughs> Let's get that for a promo. Let's hold that for a promo. Um, but like, I knew that I was behaving in a way that was, that there was something happening, but I didn't want to call it that. I think one, because it didn't look the way that I thought it did. And two, because that would mean it was a thing and not mm. just me tripping. So I've, I've had people on the show black men who say, well, we don't want to say it's depression. We don't say we want to help that we need help because you got to man up. You got to, you know, like depression is a, some, I can't remember who said depression is something for rich white people who have too much time on their hands. Listen, it's like, <laughs> we don't have time for that shit. Okay. Right. I've got, well, that's what I was going to ask. Like, was there just this idea that 
this is unacceptable to even be going to someone? If there were a hundred percent of consideration, it, that might have been like five or ten percent of it for me. It wasn't. That wasn't the significant piece of it. I I remember an episode of the Cosby Show where Theo has been having like a learning disability, but they didn't know it was a learning disability. They thought he was just acting out in school, and then he goes and gets tested. And they come back and they say to him, oh, you're dyslexic. And I remember the light bulb going on for him. And it felt different that it wasn't just I'm, you know, a dumbass. Like people are acting like I am. It's a thing. And it, because it's a thing, we know that we can do something. Right. And I felt the same way about it being called depression. After I like let go of whatever stigma was attached to that for me. And the this doesn't look like depression the depression I've been sold, if you will. Uh -huh. After I let those two things go, I felt much more comfortable in like, oh, this is a thing. And so similarly to Theo in that episode, once I knew it was a thing, it felt, man more, it felt more manageable in a way because I was like, oh, this is happening right now. And I know that this happens and I can do something about it or I can handle it in a certain way, or I can just let it be here, right? Mm -hmm. we can, I can just be present with it today. And so, yeah, that it was, it was not really about a masculinity thing or a, a black thing so much as like, I had a clear picture of what depression was and it wasn't that. But I also think that, and I joke about this with my straight male friends, but I'm not actually joking. I always say like, I think straight men are a little bit jealous of queer men because queer men have uh, there's almost an expectation of us to be a little bit more emotional or to be a little bit different at the very least. Not necessarily emotional, but like a little bit freer with the way that we exist in the world. And I know for myself, yeah. I have, you know, I've always been relatively aware of how I'm feeling about things, even if I didn't have like the perfect language for it. And so I don't have that same thing that I think that some straight black men might experience of having the world expect a, a certain presence from them. More with Jared Hill in a moment. When I was growing up, the worst thing a boy could call another boy was gay. You know, mm -hmm. like you throw, you throw that football like you're gay. You're gay for not being able to throw that football. Throw it like a girl, yeah. Yeah, or even just like... For for nothing, nothing that seems stereotypically gay. Just like you're gay. Like I'm mad at you. You're gay. Yeah. Did you grow up with that? Did you grow up as a gay person, getting told that what you are is inherently wrong and bad? Yeah. So I, I remember when I was six years old, liking liking Craig Hurst, on the playground. Craig had a girlfriend named Erica. Craig and Erica were both very pretty, but mm -hmm. like. Craig was pretty, and I wanted to be Craig's friend. <laughs> <laughs> now, as a six-year-old, you don't have like pro you don't process all of that shit. But as an adult, we recognize you're pretty, and I want to go interact with you. That's attraction, right? Like that's a, yeah, that's, that's what a we call it. Thing. We have a grown-up right. world for that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and so I I didn't know what it was in a way to be able to articulate it or or move about the world, but I did know that ain't nobody else talking about that shit, so you ain't either, right? Mm. And so I knew not to verbalize that. I knew not to converse with folks about it. 
and I knew not to go talk to Craig about it specifically, right? So then I I had other students make those kinds of comments that you're referencing, like, oh, you're gay or, you know, you did that like a girl or whatever, you're a sissy. But I didn't identify as gay and I, I'd heard it enough that it was a thing, but like I didn't identify with it. So I didn't know what to do with that, right? Mm-hmm. So then as a teenager, I remember seeing you know, by queer trans folks on talk shows and things like that. And I was a huge talk show fan. So I would always be more intrigued when there was a bisexual person on Ricky Lake or there was a, you know, a gay person on Oprah. But I didn't even know then, like, I'm intrigued by their queerness because I recognize that that is in me, that is in them. Wow. But then I saw Greg Louganis on Oprah and he was talking about being gay and positive and all of these different things. And that was, for some reason, the first time it occurred to me, oh, that's what I am. And I was a young teenager and I was like, I'm like him because I've heard him describing like what it felt like to be that person and to be ridiculed and I related to that. Yeah. And so then I had like years of like praying it away right because i grew up super christian and all that shit and like trying to get rid of it like lord take it away blah 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 blah. and i didn't come out until i was 19 years old um which was an incredibly difficult time for me an incredibly depressed time for me um it was really difficult and even though you grew up in the bay area where i would think this would be a, a much more common pedestrian thing well sure but like i grew up in the bay area but i'm i'm and heavily in the church right like i was i I grew up in my uncle's church my parents divorced we found another church and like we not only were we like in the church but like i was involved in church right like i was i would get up and speak i would host events uh you know the joke was like don't put a microphone in front of jared um because you know you'll never start talking (laughs) exactly right like i mean I'm, i'm here talking my ass off right and so it was not something that was going to be okay. Um, and it was, I knew that without ever having asked anyone about it and without anyone having to tell me that that was not going to be okay. And I remember going away because I went to junior college for my first two years of college and then I transferred um, to Clark Atlanta University. And I remember coming home for that first Christmas and being in uh, my home church and hearing my pastor say, and single mothers, don't let your boys grow up to be punks and sissies. Mm. And I remember, like, the world kind of stopped. I didn't hear another word he said that day. I just, like, if we were in a film, like, everything went into blur around me. And I was like, whoa, that is the hate speech from the playground, right? That is what I used to hear people call me in, in elementary school when I didn't even have language for who I was or what I was going through. And it was the first time that I thought to myself, oh, everything that comes out of the mouth of the pastor is not something that God told them to say. Had that pastor been saying things like that the whole time? I don't remember him saying like a bunch of overtly homophobic things, but like when you grow up in Christian culture, you don't even have to hear people talk about it directly to know because like the way that they talk about that guy Right. They don't have to talk about him being gay, but you notice that, you know, Charlie is different and he behaves differently and the way that people talk about him. Or uh, I remember getting my hair cut one day and like the barbershop is like its own, you know, 
very complicated uh, experience that we did a whole episode on for Fanti. But like, I remember one barber talking about one of the barbers that wasn't there. And they they said, oh, well, he's not here. I don't know where he is. He's probably somewhere face down in a pillow. And like the way that everyone laughed, I didn't know what that meant, but I knew that meant something about him being queer. And like, as an adult, I, I have a much clearer understanding of what that meant, right? But like, <laughs> it was always kind of like the undertone. It was part of the conversation of like, those people, uh-uh, you don't do that shit. And so, yeah, it was it was always in the air, in the fabric of like everything without having to be like directly pinpointed. So when when you grow up and enter society as an adult, you enter a society with systemic racism and systemic homophobia. Did you hate yourself? Um so I I came out when I was 19 after having started to meet friends who were also queer and like trying to figure out what I recognized in them that was in me and how to make it okay. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time I ever went to a gay club, I walk in and the first person that I see is a person from that I had a crush on in middle school that I always thought was straight. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh my God, what are you doing here? And then one of my best friends from middle school was the second person and they were there together. <laughs> wow. And it was like, and she's there and she's like, oh my God, Jared! And I was like, It's like the end oh of The Wizard God. of Oz. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was like, oh my God, Jessica. You know what I mean? Like I was freaked out by it. And I was trying to figure out like, what the fuck have I done just by walking in this door, right? And so that kind of like set off the, set things in motion for me coming out eventually. But like, I remember a friend of mine who's a dancer, he was choreographing this piece to a song called Here's Where I Stand uh, from a movie called Camp. And like, I just started crying and I didn't even, I wasn't even listening to the words, but like something about what the words were saying made me start crying. And the song is saying, here's where I stand, here's who I am, love me, but don't tell me who I have to be. I'm on my way, I'm moving now. And I remember that song is what really started the is really catalyzed me to write a letter to my mom that was four pages long that I just got back from her recently um, for this thing I'm working on. And I wrote her this long letter. I lived with my dad at the time and I went over to her house to put it in the mailbox on the night of Thanksgiving. And she was pulling into her driveway with my stepdad and my brother at the time. And I was like, well, not putting it in there today (laughs) and just put it in my glove compartment and act like I came over to see them. But, like, I was in this, like, depression spiral of, like, wanting to say it, but not feeling like I could. And eventually I came out to her and immediately, like, I had, like, these really high highs and these really low lows that I couldn't call depression because I didn't have that language then. But I knew that whatever was going on in me that I was praying that God would take away, this is not how God would have wanted me to feel Yeah, all day, every day. And so... I struggle with whether or not I hated myself, but I definitely did not feel okay existing, if that makes sense. Um, And I had plenty of times where I was like, I just don't want to be here anymore because I don't know what else I'm supposed to do. It was a really, really difficult experience. And I, I, that when I realized like, this is not what God would want for me, I said a prayer and I was like, God, I've asked you to take this away my whole life or, you know, as long as I could understand it. And 
you've not done it. And I feel like if it's something that you want taken away, you're going to do it, but I can't. And I'm just, I'm letting go of the hope and expectation that it's going to change. And that was a, a major turning point for me. And, and I, I started to be able to embrace who I was more. It's interesting that you use the language of the church that you grew up in uh, and then had turned out that that church was telling you not to exist and you use that yeah. same language to, to get back to being okay with yourself. Yeah, we, we did an episode uh, on gospel music and the conflict of like growing up queer and Christian and how even to this day, I still will turn to gospel music because of the way that it comforts me or inspires me or, you know, whatever it is that I need in that moment. But it's also, there's a conflict there because there's a good amount of things in gospel music that are really homophobic that tell me that like, that is not what God wants for me and that, you know, whatever. And so even in those moments when I was trying to like make myself feel better, I still turned to God and always felt that like, God knew what was going on in a way that people didn't. And I still believe that. Like my my religion has definitely faded, but my faith hasn't. And I still my my view on who and what God, the all, the, you know, the divine is, is just so much different than it was when I was 19. I think that, you know, God is a lot more progressive than than we <laughs> allow God to be. And that, you know, I heard someone say, you know, God created man in his own image and then man turned around and returned the favor. Mm -hmm. And like, we've made God into this thing that works for us. Right. And I, and maybe that's true and maybe it's not, I don't know, but uh, it's, it's been an interesting journey as a queer person trying to figure out faith versus religion versus, you know, what have you. I want to ask about your therapists. Were any of them black or queer who could understand the experiences that you were going through? Yeah. So my first therapist was a black woman. My second therapist was a black woman. And then my, I've always had female therapists. And then all of my therapists since college have been women of color, but not necessarily black women. I've always wanted a black woman, but it's not always worked out that I could find one or get one or, you know, they had availability or whatever. And my current therapist is a woman of color and she's queer. So, yeah, I've had, you know, women of color that were always my therapist. How difficult has that been to, to find them and, and get those appointments? It's, it's been a challenge. Um, I mean, my first two therapists, I don't know if my mom asked for a black woman for me. I'd have to go back and ask her about that. But I know that having a woman of color has also been a little bit of, you know, it, it worked out that way. I, I don't know if I believe in luck or not, but like I got, you know, assigned someone from the, the programs that I was in. And each of the, the person, each of the people that I was assigned to first has always been a woman of color. And so I've been fortunate in that way. But I have been looking for a black woman um, in the past. And I also, I have friends that are looking for, you know, a, a black person, a black queer person or a black woman or whatever. And like, we're always discussing how unusual it is to find one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and to be able to get into their care. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting dynamic, but it's, I've found that it's so important for so many of us to have a person of color that understands what I'm talking about when I'm talking about how difficult it is to do X or my experience of Y or, 
that I don't have to explain the race element of my life to or have to be questioned about, well, are you sure it's race or are you sure like, no, I get what I'm, what's happening here. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Uh, so that's been really, really important. Maybe the person watching you in a store just liked your outfit. And, you know. Right. And it's like, no, sis, <laughs> no. that is not what this is. You know, and like, yeah. and I don't want to have to explain when I'm talking about, you know, why people did X or what are they talking about here? Like, I don't want to have to go through that and waste the 50 minutes that I have trying to debate with you about whether or not this is race. So, yeah, whenever I, I mean, I live in Minnesota, but whenever I look at therapists or help a friend looking for a therapist, they all seem to be. 25 year old white women named Catherine Chelsea. or yeah, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 And you know, in Minnesota, they all look like they emerged from a Nordic opera straight into a therapist. Office. <laughs> it's an interesting thing. And I, I, I don't want to pretend to have studied this part of it, but like, you know, therapy being a, a, a white woman's game, right? Like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to my therapist. Like it, Going to one's therapist, you know, years ago was so hoity-toity, you know, like, uh -huh. oh, you're a therapist, my, oh. you know? And so, like... Woody Allen movie kind of thing. Exactly, right? Like, oh, my goodness. And so, because of that, I think that not only were we not, like, going to therapists, but nobody was aspiring to be one. Right. You know what I mean? And so, like, that pipeline is very different, right? And, like, I know that folks now, um, I listen to a podcast called The Read, and, like, they talk about their mental health a good amount. It's, like, something that's evolved out of the show. And one of the co-hosts now is studying psychology because she's like, wow, why was I never, you know, like, thinking about this or, or feeling this? And she talks about how it's been amazing to her how, like, how mind-opening this has been for her. And, like, I think to myself, like, how many of us would have really benefited from like consistent therapy throughout our lives. Cause even I've only had it for stints, right? Five different mm -hmm. stints over 35 years. I've not had it consistently throughout my adult life. How much would we benefit? And like, I often think that, and this is kind of going down a different rabbit hole, but when we talk about reparations in America, the idea for, for black folks to get a check from the government and that will like atone for enslavement. I always think that one, that's like, like it's insulting and insufficient, but also I think about the ways that black folks have been really degraded and deteriorated and have had our lives deteriorated by the system of America. And like- Yeah, traumatized. Traumatized, like there's so many different eyes um, that probably yeah. fit in there. <laughs> but I always think to myself, mental health and, uh, you know, access to, to mental health care or, you know, or treatment or just having access to a counseling is something that every black person should just have for free. Like it is something that needs to be a part of this country's reparations to what it did to black people. And that would probably extend to Latino and indigenous and, uh, and mm -hmm. Asian folks. And, you know, so many different like elements of people, like it's not something that we should have to like search for and, you know, figure out how to pay for Like it's something that we all need uh, in a way that's, that's really uh, important. And the education to become a therapist, too, should, yeah. should be free. Yeah. I mean, so many other countries pay their people to go to school for doctors. Yeah. 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 I'm interested. You, you've talked about how you're very comfortable with a black woman, more so than you might be comfortable with a white therapist. But why are you not as equally comfortable with just a guy? Like, you'd rather have a black woman than a white guy. And mm -hmm. I think 
hearing this, some people would say, well, he's a guy. What's what's the difference? I am. Uh, I, I've, I've sat with that for a while. Like, what is that about? I grew up with a single mom. And I, I think that that probably has something to do with the way that I trust black women in a way that I don't always trust black men. I've also dated more black men than we want to have a conversation about in this convert in this podcast. Uh-huh. Um, and like black men have been a range of things for me, right? They've been home and safety, but they've also been like pain and, you know, difficulty and trauma. And, and even if, like thinking about my very up and down relationship with my father, I think that all of those things kind of come together to really make me feel a lot more at ease and, and comfortable and uh, trusting of a black woman in a way that I don't always feel with black men or just okay. a, or man, a man in general. And then how is it more important to have, to have somebody who knows, that's not a fair question. I'm going to ask it. Um, somebody who has the black experience, the black lived experience more so than the queer lived experience. Um, I have found that, and I, I've actually only really gotten this for myself in the last couple of years because my two most recent therapists have been Latino women. And I know this, the one that I have right now is a queer Latina, but I don't know if the one before was queer, but she had some queer vibes. So maybe, um, but, uh, your queer dar went off. Yeah, exactly. It pinged a little bit. So, you know, I'm not sure. But there's something about being a person of color that you understand what I'm talking about when I talk about how, you know, so-and-so looked at me X kind of way and I knew what that was about. Or I experienced this thing at my job with this white woman who said X to me. Or, you know, you know, insert various different things here. And I think that the race piece has been more important to me than being queer because I'm not really having a lot of issues around my queerness and how I show up in the world. Like I, I joke, like I've, I've been like professionally gay, right? Like I was on a queer radio station hosting a, a show about, you know, gay stuff. So like the, the gay part of it is not always hard, but like race is a part of everything, right? Like race shows up everywhere you look. And I think that mind you, not having a homophobic therapist is helpful. Um, yeah. But like, but having someone who understands the the black brown experience has been really important. Yeah, I would think. And you say you're in therapy now. You've been going for a little while now. Mm-hmm. I would think that, especially in the wake of George Floyd, you wouldn't want to have somebody who doesn't know what you're talking about. Yeah, and I mean, George Floyd was an interesting situation because that happened, you know, that last week of May, and then June came, and it was Pride Month. And so if you were in the intersection of being black and queer, oh, baby, they wanted you on their panel. They wanted you in their meeting. They wanted you to speak to their organization. They wanted, they like, all of my black, queer, and trans friends were like, second week of June, like, I don't know how I'm going to make it, sis. Like, I'm tired. I'm tired. Like, it was, it was a very grueling period. So I, uh, in July, I did a piece for Self Magazine talking to black journalists about how they got through June. Mm. And it was a really challenging time because like, even if we remove work from it, right? I am having to talk to white people in my life 
about this shit way more than I want to. And I'm having to like deal with my blackness and the way that this country engages me as a black person in a way that is painful, but is also compounded. And I always, I like to frame it as like, I think we often think about when you go through a trauma and then you come out of it and there's the post-traumatic stress. But I think that as a black person in America, we are always seeing these events happening and we have the post-traumatic stress of having seen George Floyd. But then there's like a present traumatic stress when you're like in the thick of what that feels like. And then to go out into the world and have to be a black person, especially like a black man, but also for black women because black women die at rates that are alarming and often don't get discussed. To have to go out into the world as a black man and know that your life does not have the same value to this country, to this, you know, this system, to this job, to this, you know, worker in this store or whatever, to have to also have that and be worried about what's going to happen when you're outside, that's like a pre-traumatic stress, right? Like the trauma hasn't even happened, but like I have a defensiveness about what it's going to be like if that cop that I just passed pulls me over. And is this it for me? Um, there's there's nothing that gives me anxiety like seeing red and blue lights flashing on the street, even if they're not behind me. Or if I'm in Starbucks, I remember being downtown in Starbucks and, and there was a police officer in there. And like, I think he was just waiting to get his coffee or whatever. But like seeing a police officer in close proximity, my anxiety level goes up immediately. And like, I just want to not be in that space. I want my drink to get done. I want to get this napkin and get out of here without having to interact with him. And like, that is a pre-traumatic stress because nothing's happened seemingly yet, right? And so it's, it's, a very, it's a very, you know, present thing every single day. That's Jarrett Hill. You can hear him on the Fanti podcast here on Maximum Fun. Let's keep going on this subject, though. The idea of working with a therapist with whom you have significant groups in common. That is just ahead. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is a podcast. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. That thing is not my daughter. And I want you to tell me there's a show where the hosts don't just report on French science and spirituality, but take part themselves. Well, there is, and it's Ono, Ross, and Carrie on Maximum Fun. This year, we actually became certified exorcists. So yes, Carrie and I can help your daughter. Or we can just talk about it on the show. Ono, Ross, and Carrie on MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. 
hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rode and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talking about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Dr. Cassara Diet is a therapist in Massachusetts, and she's been a client of therapists as well. Dr. Diet is a woman, and she's black. I wanted to get her perspective on the idea of having more or less in common with the therapist that you go to. The idea of not having to explain yourself, especially when it comes to racial trauma, is about safety. It's, it's very much about safety. And so for me, seeking a therapist who is sensitive in those areas, who's humble in those areas, means are you safe enough, especially when it's a white therapist? In terms of, of safety, the safety to, to get to those deeper parts of you to like, and, and not feel like there's going to be a violation. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Or that you're going to be traumatized again by mm. your own therapist, you know, and it's, it's not like it's completely out of the realm of possible, right? Like we have friction with our therapist. There are what we call quote ruptures. Uh-huh. <laughs> that is how they, the therapist can handle that. That indicates whether or not they're up to the task of supporting your, your healing work. If that makes sense. Yeah, I'm. I'm still trying to, to uh, you know, and, and I'm. I'm coming at this from my own bunch of perspectives and my own various qualities. But, like, what's an instance where a therapist can potentially violate something to the point of of trauma? I think the most obvious one to go to, because when you last saw me, my hair was different. Uh-huh. Now, for people who are not seeing it, I have my hair in braids. My hair was curly when I last saw you. I've had therapists who try to comment or ask me questions about my hair. And as a Black woman, there's so much around your hair as part of your identity, as part of your racial identity, you know, your expression of yourself and I grew up with my parents teaching me, don't let people touch your hair. Mm. You know, don't let people do X. Like they'd say things like, oh, if somebody does this, your hair will fall out. Like scare tactics for kids to keep people from from touching your hair. But there was a subtle communication that that's something sacred about that. And so people will say, oh, that's not your real hair, is it? How did it get that way? You know, what does that feel like? And all of these intrusive questions that they would never ask a white person which is almost the same as you sort of pushing permission for access to my body without really asking me. Mm. Um, Yeah. And so I choose that one because that's easy for me to think about right now (laughs) because my hair is different. Um, But it's really kind of icky and doesn't feel good. And it's, it's traumatizing. Yeah. Um, It's, it's othering. It's, it's, it's turning you into a a novelty instead mm -hmm. of a human. Yeah. What should somebody who, is looking for a therapist, keep in mind. You know, we interviewed Jarrett Hill, who it, we, we talked about like, okay, is it important that you find somebody uh, 
LGBTQ or very, very deeply familiar with LGBTQ issues or somebody who's who's black? Like, what is the primary thing that 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 person needs to really be in touch with? If I'm speaking sort of racially specific for me, I test my therapists in my first couple of sessions. I come armed with questions and I fully expect people to do that for me as well. But I have these questions that I'll ask. And it's sort of like, if you don't get this in the first three or four sessions, I'm out. What are the questions? <laughs> well, they're, they're, they seem pretty innocuous, but it's interesting to see how people respond. You know, I've, I've asked someone, um, what do you do or what have you done if you've had a Black client and they've told you about something racist that happened to them at work? Because I find that to be more specific of a question than what's your experience with diverse populations? Like people could come up with any answer for that. Yeah. But how someone responds to a really specific question can be telling. Or even with um, white therapists, I'll ask, how do you address issues of race with white clients? Mm. Because some people don't, you know, and their clients will say really racist things that contradict with their own values as a therapist and how they help how they assist their clients explore those issues and how they're operating in their lives and impacting other people in their lives tells me something important too. Would you recommend when somebody is seeing a new therapist, I mean, obviously to, to be, to be skeptical, to see if, to see if there's a connection being made, but is there a process that you would recommend to somebody seeing a new therapist that, you know, questions they should ask to, to kind of check for these things, to check to see if there's resonance? Yeah. Well, so I definitely think that it's important to ask just generally about what populations a person has worked with, what their experience is. People list a lot of things on their profile, and it kind of seems like, how, do, how can I tell that this person really gets you know, my, my group or whatever, because that can get you a sense of, do they understand the language that my community is using? Do they understand the language as it's changing? Because the language always is changing. You know, I've, I've learned, I myself was scrutinized very early as a young therapist about my age. Can you provide that support for me? And I try not to be um, defensive about questions like that, especially when they're coming from parents. Because mm -hmm. I see kids, you know, they want to know, is this person going to take care of my kid? <laughs> can, they, right. can they really help? And then there's also um, maybe where have you trained? What kind of training have you had? Um, what does that even mean? How do you decide together with clients about what your treatment process looks like? I'm very collaborative. So I'm constantly seeking feedback. And that means like really give me feedback. And I always say to people, if in the early sessions you're struggling with a therapist and you give them that feedback and they don't respond in a way that's like, you know, I'm going to adjust how I'm working here, then maybe that's not the person for you. Because um, I've had many cases where friends have given that feedback to therapists and the therapists say something like, oh, well, you're just X, Y, and Z. You're just difficult you just don't want to do this. And the therapist doesn't own that maybe they have their own limitations. Mm. 
And I think it's so important for a therapist to be honest about where they are limited, but not in a way that's patronizing to people. So those are sort of signal checks that I suggest people look for sort of in the early stages of therapy. I, I would think that given the the lack of black therapists available in America today, that it's much harder for black people to get to get a therapy appointment and to get a satisfactory and helpful therapy appointment. What's the result of that problem? Like what what is that problem creating in in a society in general that is having so many problems, that has always had so many problems with, uh, with race? Yeah, I think about this a lot. Yeah. <laughs> because there are so many studies, as you've probably heard over the years, about um, what they call racial matching. So studies investigating whether or not matching um, clients with therapists based on race actually makes treatment more effective. And the results of those studies have been pretty mixed. The most recent one was done in um, October of 2020. The results of that was still mixed. Mm -hmm. And some of what studies have shown us, they've broken it down, is if you can pair people, so um, they're with another person of color, necessarily not with their race, but they're pairing someone with someone who has a high level of multicultural sensitivity and humility, that sometimes makes more of the difference. But this other sort of unstudied layer that you're asking about is what do we do with sort of my generation of folks who are seeking therapy specifically around issues of racial trauma? We don't really have studies for that. And we haven't really thought about it in that way. And the worry, as I mentioned earlier, about not being traumatized by your therapist yeah. is a huge part of that when people are seeking treatment. And no, like before, it wasn't even really conceptualized. Oh, I can seek therapy for racial trauma. <laughs> and Dr. Joya DeGruy's work on post-traumatic slave syndrome has really been keying people into this, this idea that the legacy and generations of trauma in the African-American community has created so many health disparities, mental health disparities, and so on. And so we have this sort of lack of people being taken care of for this thing that continues to happen to them. And then they continue to be traumatized. And then, as you mentioned, the same criteria apply when it comes to the, the therapist pool. You already have the small pool. And of that small pool, not everybody is qualified or not everybody is a great fit. And it's even smaller and smaller and smaller. And so we have all of these people who just aren't seeking therapists mm -hmm. anymore. They've just stopped searching because they will not see a white therapist. And then that, therefore, likely is further exacerbating disparities for folks um, in racially minoritized communities, right? Because they're just like, nope, I'm not seeing a white person, period. And then whatever they're dealing with is certainly not getting any better. Right. Or at least they're not getting supported in a way that will keep the wounds from getting much larger than they already are. That's Dr. Kassara Dayat. It's interesting, we talked on our previous episode about the potential of teletherapy and telepsychiatry to help out underserved populations. 
And it's easy to think of that in terms of geography, like in Alaska or Texas. How do you connect people who are in need from such great distances? And certainly there are issues of being licensed in a state that you're practicing in, but if therapy at a distance becomes more and more the common thing, if issues of access to high-speed internet, if that gets better, maybe it could help. Maybe there's some hope there. If the only therapist who gets you, who knows what you're talking about, who's taking on new patients, if they're in Austin and you're all the way in Lubbock, maybe things can get better. I hope so. Next time on Depression Mode, you have a lifetime of obsessive compulsive disorder. You're engaged to marry the love of your life. And then that person drops you out of nowhere. What happens next? And it wasn't even like he sat me down and, and broke me the news. He just was like off. And I was like, what's going on? And within 20 minutes, it was, I'm done. I don't want to work on this at all. Goodbye. <laughs> on like a Monday night. And, and what is so interesting is, in the past, that would have broken me. YouTube star Allison Raskin is with us. Hey, we love it when you recommend Depression Mode to friends. It might help them. Certainly helps us. Also, something that matters a lot, hit subscribe, give us five stars, write reviews, and that helps more people find out about the show, which helps our mission of getting those conversations happening and our greater mission of changing the world. I want you to know that the Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 for free at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. The Crisis Text Line, also free, also always available. Just text HOME to 741-741. Depression Mode is your show. We take requests. We're that kind of a DJ. Let us know who you want me to interview, what issues you want to hear more about. We want to hear from you. You can email us our electric mail address, depressionmode at maximumfun.org. Why do I say electric mail instead of email? And even though I know that the term is electronic mail, because I think it's funny. And also, to send an email, you need electricity, right? So anyway, that's our electric mail address. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies. Great talk going on on there. I stop by sometimes. Just search Preshies on Facebook. We're on Twitter and Instagram at DepressPod. Our Depression Mode newsletter is available on Substack. Search it up. I have notes and thoughts and discussions on all of our episodes there as they come out. Plus some just fun and silly stuff, too. It's free to subscribe. I'm on Twitter at John Moe, all one word. Same on Instagram. Hello, credits listeners. Britain Hill in Florida stands just 345 feet above sea level, making it the lowest, highest point of a state in America. That's a tricky sentence. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings No one knows the reason Maybe there's no reason I just keep believing No one knows the answer Maybe there's no answer 
I'm Becky from Michigan, and I believe in you. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun. I'm John Moe. Bye now. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.